Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. It's that time of year again. In just a couple of weeks, Tales to Terrify will once again be open for submissions. As a refresher, we're on the hunt for the most nightmare-inducing stories you can craft under 10,000 words. Dark and devilish tales to leave an indelible black mark on any ears fortunate enough to hear them. Of course, that said, we do still like to keep it somewhat classy around these parts. We're not into torture porn or excessive gore. We're not into the same old tired tropes. And we definitely don't publish anything born from hate, prejudice, or intolerance. Gender, race, culture, or otherwise. What we do want are unique, dark works of literary horror fiction. 
Whether you're a seasoned author or a budding talent, we want the deepest shadows you can conjure. Show us what unique twists you can weave into classic themes. Give us a taste of fresh darkness that's yet to see the light of day. Scare us, disturb us, and chill us to the bone. I dare you. Submissions will open August 15th. But in the meantime, I suggest heading over to TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions, where you can read a little more about what we're looking for and how to submit. I'm excited to see what fresh and twisted horrors you birth this time around, children of the night. Collecting and reviewing dark tales from talented authors is only part of the equation, though. Making sure we're able to fairly compensate those authors is vital to what we do, too. And that wouldn't be possible without the tremendous generosity of our patrons. Delightfully twisted individuals like Matt Snyder and Rachel Woodbrook. Without your support, this show would be, well, let's just say, there's not much terror without the tales. Speaking of telling tales, we're taking a jump northward from where we were last week to meet a real-life legend who's left a pretty dark stain on the history of the Northwest Territories. By all accounts, Albert Johnson was, well, he was kind of an asshole, really. In the cold, empty wilds of the North, cooperation between neighbors wasn't just a social nicety. It could often mean the difference between life and death. But Johnson, with his cold blue eyes and penchant for surly silences, wasn't really one for making friends. And that was just how he liked it. He'd tolerate others when he had no other choice, dropping in to pick up supplies or trade pelts, but he preferred the silence and solitude of his isolated cabin. Given its stark contrast to societal norms, it was an attitude that was unsettling to the other inhabitants of the area. The tiny community of Aklavik in the Mackenzie River Valley of the Northwest Territories is surrounded by an unforgiving landscape. Frigid winter temperatures, deep snow, and treacherous terrain spelled certain death for all but the most experienced hunters and trappers. Johnson, though, had a reputation for being just as surly and unforgiving with the land as he was with the people. He had an almost uncanny command of the environment, being able to navigate trails, track game, and weather the elements with a sort of belligerent ease, almost as if nature was as afraid of him as his neighbors were. It was understandably with some hesitation then that RCMP constables Alfred King and Joe Bernard knocked on Johnson's door one winter afternoon. A trapper with the local Gwich'in tribe had lodged a complaint against Johnson. Johnson had been tampering with their trap lines, they said, tripping the traps and hanging them from the trees. And the Mounties were there to question Johnson about it. They had seen smoke rising from the chimney of the cabin as they'd approached, seen the flicker of a fire in the hearth through the window. Johnson was home. They were sure. But no matter how hard and long they knocked, there was no answer. RCMP officer King 
moved to peer into the cabin window to see if he could get a look at Johnson. But almost as soon as he stepped off the front step, a hand pulled a cloth down across the window. Without a search warrant, there wasn't much else they could do. So they headed back to town to acquire exactly that. The two officers, along with two more men, arrived back at Johnson's cabin. But again, Johnson refused to speak with them, refused to even acknowledge their presence. King, though, warrant in hand, wasn't getting turned away again. He braced and prepared to force the door. There was a dull bang as King's shoulder met the wood of the door, followed almost immediately by the sharp crack of a rifle from the other side. As Johnson opened fire on the four men on his doorstep, they began to fire back blindly at the house. Under cover of that fire, they managed to drag King free and return him to Aklavik, injured but alive. It was on. No more playing nice and civil. The RCMP returned shortly after, ready for battle. Nine men, 42 dogs, and 20 pounds of dynamite. If Johnson didn't want to talk, they'd take him back to town in pieces. They surrounded the cabin, and another firefight ensued. But the RCMP just couldn't seem to gain the upper hand. Finally, running low on both ammunition and options, they combined the dynamite into a single charge, lit the fuse, and tossed it into the cabin. An incredible explosion rocked the valley, and Johnson's cabin collapsed, torn apart from the inside. As the smoke began to settle and the embers to sputter out in the frigid temperatures, the officers rushed the cabin. Sure, the trapper must have been killed or at least injured by the blast. But as they ran in, more gunfire erupted from within the cabin. Johnson had hid himself in a trench below the floor, and somehow, unbelievably, seemed almost entirely unscathed. The standoff continued until 4 a.m., the temperature plunging to minus 40. The RCMP were eventually forced to retreat back to town. When an even larger and better equipped posse eventually made their way back to the remains of the cabin, they found the property abandoned. How anyone could survive on the run with meager supplies in the harsh wilderness was almost inconceivable. But Johnson didn't just survive. He seemed to thrive. They searched for weeks for a trace of the madman and eventually caught up with him in a thicket. He again held them off with gunfire, killing Constable Edgar Millen before merging back into the wilderness. Johnson seemed to melt into the terrain like a ghost. It was uncanny and more than a little unsettling. Despite the combined efforts of dozens of Mounties, dogs, local trappers, and First Nations hunters, Johnson had all but vanished into the frozen twilight of the Arctic wilderness. But with the aerial assistance of famed bush pilot Wap May, his tracks were finally spotted and he was surrounded in a clearing. Caught in deep snow without snowshoes, 
he fired back at the police and attempted to dash for safety. But before he could make it to the tree line, the ghostly mad trapper of Rat River was finally shot dead by the RCMP. Some of Albert Johnson's belongings are still on display at the RCMP Museum in Regina, Saskatchewan, not too far from where I live. I haven't seen them for myself, but I have seen the haunting post-mortem pictures taken by the RCMP. I know this isn't your typical creepy story or dark legend. There are no ghostly spirits or terrifying creatures. But I find something so unsettling in the bald violence and inhuman detachment of Albert Johnson. Not to mention his otherworldly ability to weather more than 30 days alone in one of the harshest climates on earth. What really strikes me, though, is that he never tried to explain or defend himself. He never negotiated, never backed down. In fact, there's no record of Albert Johnson uttering a single word throughout the 33-day manhunt. The only sound any of his pursuers ever heard him make was a deep, long, chilling laugh after killing Officer Edgar Millen with a bullet through the heart. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Jenny Blackford. Jenny is an award-winning Australian writer and poet. Her poems and stories have appeared in Asimov's, Cosmos, Westerly, Strange Horizons, and more. She won two prizes in the 2016 Sisters in Crime Australia Scarlet Stiletto Awards for a murder mystery set in classical Delphi with water nymphs. Eagle Books published her spooky middle-grade adventure novel, The Girl in the Mirror, in October 2019. Children of the Night, join me for Jenny Blackford's Mother of Monsters, first published in the non-binary review Odyssey issue, September 2019. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
The cool froth of a broken wave rolled over her feet, startling her. Sand, cold and wet, was packed almost solid under her bare feet. To her left, waves broke well out to sea. By the time they sighed their way to the waterline, they were attenuated, hardly rising as high as her ankles. Tiny holes appeared in the wet sand as the water sucked back out to sea and filled in again when the bubbling wave surged towards the sand. Seabirds flew overhead, their cawing voices harsh. Take off your robe, Medea. Yes, that was her name, Medea. Obedient, she unpinned the gold brooches that held her robe together at the shoulders and let it slide into the water. The crisp white linen turned soft as floating seaweed and drifted around her wet feet. The brooches glinted even yellower than the sand. Her body was bare to the golden sun now. She could feel its heat and light pushing gently against her skin. Somewhere, female voices chanted the praises of Father Zeus, King of Olympus, and the justice that he preserved. Smoke sweet with strange essences lingered in her throat and lungs. Why was she here? She looked around, but there was no one in sight but herself and a small blonde woman, her Aunt Circe, on this endless stretch of beach. What were they doing in this bright, lonely place? Crabs smaller than her toenails scuttled frantically around her feet when the waves retreated out to sea. Their thin, pinky-gray shells were so thin that she could see almost straight through them to the wet sand below. Put out your hands, Medea. Was that her name? She felt her hands hanging limp beside her bare thighs. She couldn't remember how to make them move, and wondered if she should ask someone how it was done. She opened her mouth to speak, but then she saw her hands already out in front of her. Was that a trace of blood under her fingernails? Her hands were reaching out towards a woman. Circe. The sorceress gestured in the air, too fast for Medea's eyes to follow. Then Circe's left arm held a fat piglet, and her right hand grasped a crescent-shaped knife of polished bronze. She looked up to the impossibly blue sky, and her lips moved as if she spoke, but Medea could only hear a rushing sound, like a gale through a forest. With one rapid movement, Circe slashed the piglet's throat, and held the dying beast over Medea's outstretched hands. The blood gushed like a warm, dark waterfall onto the girl's cupped hands, and splashed down into the seawater, staining it red. Drops of blood flecked Medea's face and breasts, and blood coated her from the waist down. It smelled of life and death, of salt and metal. When the torrent of blood became a slow drip, Circe flung the small corpse straight up into the air, as high as an albatross might fly. She cried out, The first one is for you, Electo, and clapped her hands together. A dark shape appeared high above them, near the piglet, shimmering in the painful yellows of a fading bruise. Medea's whole body hurt, from her jaw to the joints of her smallest toe. Her eyes were burning. The piglet burst into violet flames, brighter than the sun that flared out to the horizon. 
The dark shape shrieked like a sword the size of a mountain, grating against a shield the size of the sea. The princess put her hands over her ears, but the unbearable noise pushed straight through into her mind. She crouched, her eyes squeezed shut, her fingers pushed into her ears, trying to block out the noise or else claw at her brains. Suddenly there was silence, save for the slow, quiet breaths of the sea, sucking and surging. Pale ashes rained down from the sky. Stand up, Medea, and put out your hands. She uncurled her body and put out her hands. There was blood over her arms, and gray ashes stuck to the congealing blood. A piglet appeared under the blonde woman's arm, and she slit its throat. Blood ran over Medea's hands and painted her skin. The blood was warm as her own body when it gushed from the deep cut, but it cooled as it splashed over her and dripped down towards the waves. A red stain blossomed around the women's feet. This time, Circe shouted, The second one is for you, Tisiphone. She flung the blood-drained piglet into the sky. The dark shape that came for the dead beast shimmered in shades of sickest green. Its voice was agony. Medea crouched, holding her head. Stand up, Medea, and put out your hands. She obeyed the voice. Oh, it was her aunt there with her on an empty beach. Were they on Circe's island? But how had she got there, so far from her father's place, and why? She was naked, spattered with clotting blood and pale ashes, though her aunt's robe shone clean white. Circe held a piglet under her arm. She slashed a bronze knife that Medea hadn't seen across the small beast's throat, and it gushed out rich, fresh blood onto Medea's hands and body. Circe threw the corpse high into the sky and screamed, The third one is for you, Megira. The dead piglet hovered high in the air. The painful dark shape that came for this one was the almost black of a soldier's wounded foot that has started to rot nine days after battle. Her shriek was a jagged knife turning inside Medea's head. And then there was silence. Stand up, Medea. Medea? That was her name, she thought. She was crouching on wet sand. She stood. Her hands felt sticky and gritty. She looked down and saw congealing blood all over them and ashes. How had her hands got so dirty? She went to wipe them on her dress, but she was naked. She was at the waterline on a long beach. A huge green-blue lizard flapped its long wings out over the sea. There were claws at the end of its leathery wings. Four smaller lizards flew behind it, chirping. What was she doing here? The Furies are satisfied. Now, walk into the water, Medea. Walk until you find the one who will cleanse your hands of your brother's blood. The princess turned to her left, where the bright blue sky met the bright blue sea along the horizon, and walked. The frothy, broken waves licked like cold cat's tongues at Medea's ankles and calves, then at her knees. She walked. By the time the low water slopped at a point halfway up her thighs, 
She was close to the breakers, and the waves were higher when they reached her, surging over her arms and breasts. She kept walking deeper into the ocean as if on dry land, her bare feet padding over the firm, wet sand. Her body paid no attention to the sea's constant push and pull. She had been told to walk, and she walked. Sea spume washed over her shoulders, her throat, her chin, her mouth, her eyes. She breathed steadily in and out, just as the sea did. Her first gasp of frothy water stung as it hit her nose and flooded down her throat and through her lungs, but she breathed it out like air and took another breath. The next time she breathed the seawater in and out, it was less disturbing. By the fourth breath, that particular pain was no longer new. It was as if she had lived underwater all her life. She walked on steadily. Now even the retreating waves covered her head. She saw red and green darkness and realized that her eyes were closed. She opened them and the seawater burnt like tears. It felt good. It was as if her head and chest and belly had been cut wide open to the sea, and her brains and heart and entrails were spilling out. The hot pain in her eyes was right and just. Her tears streamed out, a tiny tribute to the salt liquid that surrounded her. She walked down the deepening slope of sand, through and over monstrous clumps of seaweed and clusters of dark rocks coated with sharp-shelled mollusks and greenish slime. Shoals of sparkling fish swam around her, some smaller than her little fingernail, some as long as her foot. Pods of dolphins and porpoises played overhead, now and then zooming down to suck in three or four of the scaly, swirling, smaller creatures. The seabed grew less sandy step by step, rockier, harder underfoot. She walked. Hanging gardens of weed grew on underground cliffs and stony outcrops on the seabed. The plants lashed her body like soft, wet whips. Corals in every color of the rainbow, and many more, glowed and shimmered with danger. Nightmarish palaces for monsters and marvels. Looming shapes full of dark caves where beauties and horrors lurked. A yellow fish as big as a ship swam up to her and circled her three times, its lower lip pouting in tragedy. Spots of aqua blue shone bright on its side. When it meandered off, an octopus the size of a palm tree came up to sniff at her moving legs. Translucent jellyfish trembled above her, and pulsating cuttlefish changed their confusing colored patterns every moment. The sea grew darker as she walked farther into the deep. Eerie shapes swam past her, or tried to clutch at her with teeth or claws or tentacles as she strode onwards. The sun and the sky were an ever smaller circle of dimming light above. Without her willing it, her eyes adjusted to the darkness. The deep, gloomy chasms where she trod were full of phantom light now. The weight of the sea pressed in on her. It wanted to crush the life out of her, to grind her into a small, bloody meal for its finned or tentacled denizens. But some power protected her. She walked on, ever deeper, and was not crushed, nor eaten, nor poisoned. 
Step by step she walked, and signs of life grew rarer in the gloom. The strange pale creatures that flitted past were fewer and fewer as she crossed wide underwater lava plains. Waving worms in tubes, little more than mouths, filigreed the smoking gray chimneys of a volcano. The seawater was tangy with heavy metals. She heard song and looked up. A whale splashed white with barnacles swam overhead, high above the volcano's rising fumes. His brothers and sisters answered with their own alien songs. She heard the high squeals and splashes of dolphins leaping in excitement around their gigantic cousins. A lifetime after that, she passed a whale fallen to the sea's bottom in death. Armies of snails and worms chewed on the great corpse, as well as strange pale parodies of the bony fish that men under the sun haul from the sea in their nets every day, and scuttling beasts with too many legs, tiny and large. The underwater armies stripped the flesh and fat from this most bountiful gift of the ocean and mined the whale's white bones for minerals. Its ribs curved up like the frame of a huge musical instrument. She looked without seeing and walked on. Another lifetime passed before a voice said, Stop. She stopped and waited for an endless time. The place where she stood was dark and cold as death. She felt bedrock under her bare feet, and nothing but water above and around her naked body. Somewhere inside her head, she knew that she should be a hundred times dead, drowned and crushed and eaten. Why are you here, Medea? The sound reverberated in her skull. She thought hard. Nothing came to her. Her name was Medea, she thought. But beyond that, all was a mystery. I don't know. It was all that she had. The voice boomed out, deeper than any she'd ever heard, but female. Look at your hands. She looked. They were covered in blood. Red blood clotted and congealed to browns and purple blacks. Where had that come from? How could there be blood here so deep in the cleansing ocean? Why had the swell not washed the blood away? She whimpered. What's wrong, child? The voice asked. Where was this deep-voiced woman who was asking these terrible questions? Medea forced out the words. I have blood on my hands. Yes. Whose blood is it? I don't know. Think, child. She remembered something, a flash of a knife at a throat, a woman holding a knife, blood splashing down on her hands. There were three piglets, she said. Someone killed three piglets. The sun had been very bright back then, when the blonde woman had killed the piglets. Birds flew overhead. Women sang. It was not at all like this deep, dark, wet place. The voice again, patiently. Why? She tried to answer, though her brain was slow as flowing mud, and the words that came to her made little sense. Three women wanted to hurt me. 
Another woman killed the piglets to stop the three women from hurting me. It must be the piglets' blood. But even as she said it, she knew that it wasn't the right answer. The voice said, Your Aunt Circe sacrificed three piglets to placate the three Irinias, the forces that mortals call the Eumenides, though they are far from kindly. They serve Father Zeus, God of Justice. But that's not why you are down here with me. The sea's cleansing waters long ago washed the blood of the dead piglets from your hands, as well as the ash that fell onto you when the Irinius accepted their sacrifices. Oh. Medea remembered the pale flakes of ash falling on her blood-spattered body. It had been strange. Tell me, Medea, whose blood is it there on your hands? It wasn't the piglets. Was it something small, something young, that was killed? A young dog, maybe. What were they called? A puppy. The blood on her hands was from a puppy. She was almost sure. Someone killed a puppy. Then she remembered the gray knife flashing in the sun. Her own knife in her hand. A sacrifice. It was me, she said. I killed a puppy. I gave him to Hecate. But that wasn't right. It wasn't a puppy that she killed. It was... She couldn't think what it was. She started to cry again. Her tears stained the salt water blood red. The voice said, I ask you again, Medea, whose blood is on your hands? All of a sudden her mind was as clear as the bright sky high above them. It all rushed back. Every appalling detail, and she gagged on the terrible flooding knowledge. My brother. Oh, gods, I killed... Yes, you killed your brother. Your Aunt Circe has sent you here to be cleansed of your blood guilt. She has thrown you on the mercy of a monster. The water churned. A gigantic shape, all massive tentacles and sharp teeth, loomed out from the darkness that surrounded her. The tentacles were like muscular seaweed, each thicker than a fishing boat, and a huge round mouth gaped wide, revealing rings, one after another, of sharp, inhuman teeth. Medea squeezed her eyes closed, then looked again, but it was no illusion. The creature was the size of her father's palace. I am Sito, daughter of Gaia, our mother Earth, whose bones you stand on. I am the mother of all monsters of the sea, the vast shape growled, in that impossibly deep voice. The primitive round mouth did not move. The sound did not come from it, but from within the strange body. All men fear me. And yet, young princess, I see that you do not. Medea searched inside herself for fear and did not find it. It seems not, she replied. Perhaps I would have, before I killed my brother, before Circe sent me here. The monstrous goddess spoke again. I have given birth to the ravening monsters of the deep. The giant squid who tear the flesh from mighty whales are my beloved children. The islands that dive when sailors are walking on their backs and devour the drowning men, 
and savage sharks, the gray wolves of the sea. Scylla is mine, too. Her six sharp-toothed heads on their long necks bend down from her rock to take a sailor each from every passing ship. The dragon echidna is worse. You should fear me, girl. And all my offspring. Medea looked down at her bloody hands. Perhaps I will tomorrow, if I live that long. But here, today, I feel no fear, only pain and sorrow. Sido's tentacles moved like a vast flower opening, and the sea rocked. The dragon laid on is my child, with his hundred great fanged heads. My gorgon daughters have snakes for hair, and can turn a living being into stone with their deadly gaze. These are my children, and the poets say that I am more dangerous than any of them. And yet you do not fear me. I'm sure that I should fear you, Lady Sito, and all your children, too, but I am empty of fear. Perhaps it is a part of my Aunt Circe's sorcery. She looked around, unworried, at the cold darkness so far under the waves. She must have used strong magic to send me here to you. Even my immortal father's daughter should not be breathing seawater and speaking here with you. No mortal body, Sito said could survive here in my domain for more than a few moments, even with the help of your aunt, the greatest sorceress alive. But the divine Ichor of Helios, the sun, flows in your veins. You are truly his granddaughter. As my young brother was his grandson, Medea thought. Even when she closed her eyes, she could smell blood clotted thick on her hands and under her nails. She dared not even hope that the monstrous water goddess might help her. Sido spoke again, her voice as deep as the sea. I will cleanse you, as your aunt requests of me, and as your grandfather, the sun, wishes. Medea's knees buckled under her, but before she could reply, Sido said, Men call my children monsters, though they do only what they must to survive as you did what you were forced to do, to save Jason, a man beloved of the gods. Your father the king would have killed every living being on Jason's ship if you had not sacrificed the boy to Hecate, cut him into bloody chunks, and thrown them overboard. Medea nodded, but her guilt lay heavier on her than the weight of the whole ocean. One day, Sido said, men will forget my name and the names of my monstrous children. But they will still remember you. They will call you a monster, then. A monster? Me? It must be true. The sea goddess's strange, rich voice had held the unmistakable tones of true prophecy. But why? For killing my brother? For that and worse, Medea. You will kill children even more dear to you than your brother was. No! What horrors had the gods destined her to perform? What atrocities would they demand of her? Red tears poured from Medea's eyes, but the ocean depths were so dark that the water was barely stained. Do not sorrow, young princess. Like my own children, my beloved monsters, you will only do what you must, as you did to your brother. His death was not your fault. 
the other deaths will not be your fault either. She was silent for a long moment. Not really. Medea could not imagine any death worse than her brother's. She would fight against this fate, would struggle with all her powers to escape this terrible prophecy. There is one thing I can do for you, said the mother of monsters. I can take your pain away. Would you like that? Yes. Medea asked no questions. The burden of her brother's death was intolerable. She didn't care how Sido planned to remove it. Medea stood quiet while Sido snaked out a mass of writhing tentacles, each the size of an ancient pine tree at the spot where its base grew from her vast body, but as narrow as a finger at the tip. The princess could not help but shudder as the first one touched her naked skin and circled itself around her waist, though she still felt no real fear. The tentacles wound themselves around her, limb by limb, joint by joint, hoisting her above the rocky bottom of the sea. One thick tentacle was wrapped around her neck, another her right wrist, another her left, and more around her ankles, her knees, her elbows, even her toes and fingers. The tentacles tensed just slightly, then the great beast started to pull Medea's limbs apart. The joint of the big toe on her right foot popped, just loud enough for her to hear it. The bone snapped and the flesh tore. The pain washed through her like a blessing from the gods. She had deserved this for killing her brother. The toe floated off. Medea watched its graceful floating arc entranced. The ankle joint was next, and the whole right foot was free of her body. The white bone at its center was almost shocking, but the fringe of torn flesh waved like the soft pale fronds of a sea anemone. Medea's golden ichor poured into the salt water, deep in the dark sea. With the next strong tug from Sito's tentacles, her right knee snapped off, then the right hip joint. Her whole right leg floated in pieces in the cloudy water. It was such a relief to be rid of the useless thing. The left leg followed, ragged piece by ragged piece. Broken flesh and bones wheeled in the air, bleeding ichor. A tentacle snaked towards Medea's middle and punched a hole through the skin just above her navel. It tore the thin flap of belly skin and muscle away, exposing her insides, then pulled out the floppy bag of her stomach, and loop after loop of intestines, thin and thick, an unbelievably long string of gray and red sausage. More tentacles coiled around the slimy tube and shredded it into hundreds, or perhaps thousands of pieces no longer than a finger. Soon her womb and bladder, spleen and gallbladder, and her liver torn into seven ragged pieces, all swirled together in the water like the ingredients of a ghastly soup. The flexible tip of a tentacle probed up into her chest, found her heart, and ripped it out. Another tentacle scooped out her frothy gray lungs, like the soft filling from a hard-shelled fruit. Next, the tentacles gripped at her breasts, 
and gouged them from her ribs, then snapped the two halves of her ribcage from her spine. It felt addictively good to her to be dismembered, like cracking and eating almonds or walnuts, itching with each broken shell to start on the next. Three monstrous tentacles grabbed at her hip bones then, and pulled her hips and pelvis apart, then snapped her spine at the waist and below her shoulders. The tentacle around Medea's neck tightened, and the one that was wound around her shoulders. She smiled. Ah, at last. The tentacles tugged. Her neck broke, and her head spun dizzyingly in the water before it settled, upside down, on the seabed amongst a soft drift of her other body parts. At last, only the shoulders and arms were left intact, and those terrible blood-stained hands at the end of her slender forearms. Medea watched, excited, as two tentacles twined themselves around a hand each and pulled. The left wrist broke, and its hand went flying off. More tentacles grabbed at the hand where it fell and pulled it apart, finger by bloody finger. The left elbow failed next, then the left shoulder, and two tentacles nearly tore the right arm from its shoulder and cracked her upper back into many pieces. They joined the loose collection of body parts on the seabed. The arm that had held the gray star-metal knife at her brother's puppyish throat was last to be dismembered. Medea's severed head, still upside down, wept tears of confused emotion as she watched the god-beast's tentacles shred her right hand and arm, punishing the tainted limb for killing her brother. She felt more than saw what happened next. Sito's gigantic mouth irised open, showing the circular rows of bright teeth that extended as far as Medea could see into the gaping maw, perhaps right down to her gargantuan belly. All of Medea's body parts scattered over the seabed began to swirl as the god monster sucked them towards her. More graceful than acrobats from India, the torn lumps of internal organs, flesh and bone twirled in their flight to Sito's muscular, toothed tube of a mouth. As the first piece of meat, a hunk of Medea's heart, entered the round orifice, the monster began to chew and swallow. Medea knew every impact of a sharp tooth on every tiny shred of her body, whether her eyes faced in the right direction or not. Elbows and kidneys and knees, toes and lungs, all were crunched and gurgled down into Sito's belly. Medea's head spun near the seabed as the smaller, lighter pieces were sucked in, but soon it too found itself between ring after ring of long, gleaming teeth. Sito chewed the princess's ears and eyes and cheeks and tongue to sludge, then crunched down even harder, cracking the skull wide open like a broken egg and pounding it into tiny pieces, brains and all, with those fearsome teeth, before she swallowed down the whole lumpy mess. Medea felt herself suspended in total darkness in the god-monster's fetid, fecund stomach. The princess was now blind and deaf, but she could still sense every last chunk of her body as Sito sucked it up from the sea floor into her toothy gullet, then chewed it to bits and gulped it down. After a time, perhaps a minute, perhaps a year, 
Every tiny shred of Medea's body was deep inside Sido's vast belly. Medea was strangely content. The goddess's belly was a warm, dark, alien place of heat and pressure, like the first moments of the world, when formless chaos gave birth to great Gaia and primordial night. Medea's chewed and crushed fragments swirled in the darkness. Gradually, they coalesced into a rough human shape, like ten thousand suns dancing together in the sky to form a new constellation. After a time, to her intense surprise, she could feel the shreds of her body touching one another and sticking together, congealing, each finding its correct place, every scrap of vein and muscle, skin and hair, until she was remade, all complete. Her magic senses were returned in their full force. She could look through the darkness and see much that had been hidden. She was marveling at the wonder of having fingernails and fingertips, just like before, but no longer stained with her brother's blood, when Sido spoke. Go, Medea. You are reborn. You have a whole new life before you. It will be rich and strange. And you will be... amazing. Farewell, young sorceress. Medea opened her mouth to thank the goddess, though thanks seemed inadequate for the great service that Sido had done for her. But the vast stomach started to convulse. Medea braced herself for a cataclysmic exit and closed her eyes as a gush of salty liquid pushed her through Sido's gullet like an arrow from a bow. Everything went black. She woke up on a sandy beach. She lay there naked, flat on her back, astonished at the first stars of the evening pricking brightly at the darkening sky above, the hazy pinks and violets at the horizon, the soft clean air in her lungs, and the still warm sand under her body. And, above all, her untainted hands. She lifted them from the sand and stared at them with her eyes of flesh, not her magical senses. They were so clean. Even when she closed her eyes, there was no trace of her sweet brother's blood. She hadn't imagined that such bliss was possible. A familiar shape loomed over her. Circe. Her aunt took Medea by both hands and lifted her upright. The princess was dizzy for a moment, but it passed. The stains are gone, Medea said, staring down at her hands. The blood stains are really gone. You have cleansed me. Circe smiled. Yes, I have indeed. With a little help from an old friend. A very old friend. The sun had just set, but Medea was sure that it was still the same day that she had started out for the ceremony on the beach. She could feel the phase of the moon and the positions of the stars in their constellations, and they had not moved far. But her long journey under the sea should have taken many days or even months. How much of that was real? Circe lifted a strand of seaweed from Medea's damp, salty hair. Enough. Medea persisted. 
Did Sito really eat me? Was I really inside her stomach? Circe reached behind Medea's ear and brought out a tiny blue starfish. She who cleansed you is a daughter of great Gaia, whose body we walk on. Sido is one of the most ancient of the gods, older and deeper in power than all Father Zeus, who is her sister Rhea's child. Sito can do anything that she sets her will upon. I am grateful that she chose to set her will on cleansing you. That was no answer to Medea's question, but it was enough. That was Jenny Blackford's Mother of Monsters, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast since 2014. She has narrated stories for various other podcasts, including Knife Point Horror and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to read for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. You can contact Amy through her website, thebloodlust.net. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we seek solace in the darkness with more Tales to Terrify.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.